We've been talking about fulfillment. The focal passage that we used is found in, Ma- in uh, John 10, verse 10. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it how? In the full, abundant. That you might live in the most abundant way possible, in the fullest way possible. That you might learn and know what it is to be completely fulfilled in life. Come on, how many of you would love that? How many of you read that and say, wow, God, I, I, when, I, when I hear you put it that way, who wouldn't want what you are offering? Who wouldn't want to be a follower of Christ when you, can, when you can have life in the fullest way possible? The thing is, there's a first part to the verse. And the first part is about someone else that's at work trying to get you to live in the least fulfilled manner. Someone who's trying to steal from you. And the Bible says it this way. Jesus put it, for the enemy, the thief, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Who is that thief? It's Satan. It's the the devil. It's that serpent of old. It's the dragon that was kicked out of heaven. And so Jesus is saying there's two ways. There's a way that leads to life and there's a way that leads to destruction. Which way will you choose? We get the choice, and so we've been talking about the choices we make in life, but today I want to talk about the greatest choice you have the privilege and opportunity to make, and that's that, that's that choice of faith. Whether you will exercise saving faith or not. And so, if you want real fulfillment, it starts and it ends with faith. Because faith makes it possible for you to have a relationship with God. In the book of Hebrews, the Bible says... Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Another version says it's impossible to know God. It's impossible to what? To have a relationship with him. Faith is what gives us our relationship with God. And so today I want to talk about two of my my favorite apostles, so to speak. They wrote two of the most fabulous epistles in the New Testament, and I'm talking about James, the brother of Jesus, who before Jesus was crucified and resurrected, he was not a believer. But history tells us that after he saw the resurrected Christ, he was no longer his brother. He was no longer just someone that he grew up with. He was the king, the Messiah, the one who had come to save the world. He gave his life to God, to Christ, and the Lord began to use him in a miraculous way. James would go on to be the bishop there over the New Testament church in Jerusalem. And so we have a tremendous man of God who wrote a powerful book in the book of James. If you've never read it, I would suggest get in there and devour it. It will grow your faith. James mixes no words and he holds nothing back and it's like a rapid fire of faith. Boom, boom, boom. I mean, he just goes at it. And then we're going to talk about my favorite author of all the New Testament is Paul and how he talks about faith. And so read with me because James, we'll start off with James and his account of faith is found in chapter two and he says in chapter two, verse 14, What does it profit? Okay, of what benefit, what good is it, is what he's saying. What does it profit? My brethren, if someone says he has faith, but does not have any works. Okay, what good is it if someone 
talks about faith, but has nothing to show for it. That's what he's saying. Has nothing to show for it. What good is it? Can faith save him? Can faith save him? Now, I'm going to read it very slow because these are very, very important passages, and we're going to compare and contrast it to to the Apostle Paul's words. Okay? Can faith save him? If a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them what they need for their body, what does it profit? What good is that? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, I have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well to believe that. Even the demons believe and they tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Has, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect or justified, sanctified? He was, it was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified. Come on, read it with me. A man is what? Justified how? By works. Whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. James, you stepped over the line there. You just said that a man is justified by works? Okay, keep that in mind. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Keep reading with me. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the 12 spies, remember? or excuse me, the, 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 the messengers, I'm sorry, it wasn't the Tulsa, and sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. Now watch this. What then? We're going to go to the Apostle Paul's writings now. Now go with me to the book of Romans. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. We're almost done reading, then we're going to start explaining some things. But I need us to really pay attention on this verse. Because the Apostle Paul has a different take on it. And I want to know what you think about this. Here we go. What then shall we say that Abraham our father was found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God 
and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as a debt. So drop down to verse 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So Paul seems to be saying the exact opposite of what James said. Paul is saying, wait a minute, you can't work your way into heaven. There's nothing you can do to work into God's good grace. See, if it's work, then God owes you. But God doesn't owe you anything. It was by grace that you have been saved, and that not of yourselves, for it is a gift of God, is what Paul says in the book of Ephesians. Let me read another typical Paul-type verse in the book of Galatians. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh, no flesh can or shall be justified. As a matter of fact, I'm reminded of, this, of the story in history of Martin Luther. Martin Luther, that great, that great father of faith, was there in Rome on the Scala Sancta of St. John's Cathedral in Rome, where he was crawling up the steps. You see the steps here. He was crawling up the steps, trying to earn his way, trying to, to show God how much he loved him, trying to, to, to have his body suffer that his, that his spirit might increase. When God spoke to him and he was reminded of a scripture, a very simple scripture, read with me in the book of Romans, chapter one, verse 17. He says, for in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just, what? The just shall live by? And it was there that he understood, there's no amount of works that I can do to get to heaven. I don't care how many times I crawl up and down this till my knees are bleeding. It is a gift from God. God loves me and it has nothing to do with what I've done. It has to do with who he is and what he's done at the cross through Jesus Christ. It is by faith and faith alone. It is by grace and grace alone. And he went and, and, and he, he came up from that point with the tenets and the principles that he would nail to the door and, and start the reformation. And so you see Paul here saying, by grace alone, this seems to be one of the greatest conflicts, one of the greatest inconsistencies, one of the greatest dichotomies, one of the greatest contradictions in all of, in all of scripture. And it's been misinterpreted and misunderstood through the ages. Then on one hand, James seems to say, no, it's all about words. I mean, your, your faith has to have a consequence and your faith will be shown by your works. And yet Paul says it has nothing to do with your works. It's all about faith. Who is right? They both use Abraham. It's like they use the same illustration. One says about Abraham that it was his works. The other said it had nothing to do with his works. It was all by his faith. Who's right? Who's right? 
Anyone here going, man, pastor, you have really put me in a place where if you do, you're going to hurt my faith if, if, if we can't reconcile this today. Now, I'm going to share something with you. God is right. And if he wrote it in his scripture, it makes perfect sense. You just have to search for it. The Bible says if you search, you will find. If you ask, you will receive. If you knock, it shall be opened. What I want you to understand is that salvation is not the way we've typically thought about it. A moment in time, I'm saved and I'm done. Salvation is greater than just a moment in time. Salvation is all of time. God always intended to save you. God always had it in his heart and in his mind and in his will that salvation would be extended to us. So salvation is the day when we accept by grace, I mean by faith, and we step into his righteousness and we are clothed with his righteousness, that is the day that we are justified. But that's not where we live. We live in the present. Today, by faith, we are what being sanctified and we will forever be glorified. So there's a past, there's a present, and there's a future. You say, but, but what does that have to do with this? No, you're not thinking with me here. What if one is talking about the first and the other is talking about the second? There is a way to reconcile this. Jesus himself said you must enter through the narrow gate, but you must stay on the narrow path. There's a gate and there's a path. The gate is the moment in time where you enter into salvation. The path is where you're at today. Who's talking about what? Whoa, 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 wait a minute, pastor. What if I don't enter through the narrow gate? Then you're just, you're just a stowaway on the path. How many of you have ever read Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan? It's a beautiful book and he talks about how people jump onto the path and they leave the path and they try to take shortcuts and they try, but unless you enter through the narrow gate, which is, which is faith alone, grace alone. Well, let's talk about this. Let's unfold this. Because what I want you to know is James is talking about Genesis chapter 22 while Paul is talking about Genesis chapter 15. See, Paul is referencing Abraham in chapter 15. James is referencing Abraham in chapter 22. Two totally different points. How so? Well, read it with me. In chapter 15, we see that Abram had not had his name changed yet. Why? He had not experienced that saving faith yet. That saving faith that had nothing to do with what he did, had everything to do with what he believed. And he believed God. So the Lord comes to him, and they're having a conversation about Abraham being the father of many nations. Stay with me on this. God is saying, you will be the father of many nations. And Abraham tells him here, he says, but Lord, I don't have one son. The only, the closest thing I have to a son is Eleazar, who's a servant in my house. Is that who you're talking about? And what does God say? Keep going. Drop down to verse four. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir. I'm not talking about your servant. I'm talking about one that will come from you. But Lord, I'm 89 years old. Come on, how many of you would have had a hard time believing God? God says, you are 89 years old and you are about to have a son. What you talking about, Willis? 
I mean, come on. Are, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me right now? You're, you're, I'm, no, no. But the Bible says, watch this. Watch this. He believed God. And he believed in the Lord and, it, and he counted it to him for righteousness. That's what Paul's talking about. When you first come to salvation, you can only come you and nothing else. But, 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 uh, uh, no. No ifs, ands, or buts. It's just you. Listen to what, to what James was referring to in chapter 22. Then he said, take now your son. So years have passed. God has proclaimed, I mean, God has fulfilled what his mouth proclaimed. Now this is something else to build your faith. The Bible says in the Old Testament that God always what? Performs what his mouth declares. Think about it. Think about it. It has to be because if he says it, he will do it. If not, he would be a liar. So God has now performed what his mouth proclaimed. He has a son. How old is his son? Well, we know that he asks Abraham to take his son to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him there on that mountain. So they get up early and they journey off. There's a servant and there's the, there's the boy and there's the father. Now I need you to understand something. Play this with me in your mind. They go, when he, when he arrives at the place that God has shown him, he tells his servant what? Stay here for me and the lad, me and, the, and my son are going to worship the Lord and we will be back to you. Notice that statement, we will be back to you. That's faith. Because he already knows that God has asked him to be sacrificed. God has already asked, you need to sacrifice your son to me. Now I want you to think about this with me. Who is carrying all the supplies up the mountain? The Bible tells us Isaac is. So Isaac is not a baby, he's not a lad, he is a young man, strong and fit, and his father is old and feeble. Now, in, I've heard some preachers say that, that, that Isaac must have looked at his dad when he saw all the supplies minus one. What was the one thing that was missing? The lamb, the actual sacrifice. And he said, Dad, we have everything here except the lamb. You forgot that, Dad. And his dad says what? The Lord himself will provide. The Lord himself will provide. Now watch this with me because some have said that, that Isaac must have looked at his dad and said, oh, dad's getting a little senile. No, you're talking about an awesome relationship between a son who honors and loves and respects and reveres his father. And a father who has undying, unequal love for his son. And they're walking up, and, and, and he must have thought to himself, my dad just said the Lord will provide. Then if he said the Lord will provide, then the Lord will provide. Because what this represents is God the Father and Jesus his son. Where God the Father would sacrifice his son. And so here we have the entire altar is prepared, the wood is in place, everything is in place for the burnt offering and the offering and the sacrifice. And he lays, come on now, 
He lays his son, can you imagine what he felt? Can you imagine, I want you to picture it. He lays his son, who he is so proud of and he is so pleased with, and he lays him down and he's about to sacrifice him. Now think about something. Isaac was willing just as Jesus was willing. Jesus said in the garden, listen to me. He said, Father, is there any other way? He said, no, son, you must give your life. Can you imagine Isaac saying, Dad, is there any other way? No, you must lay down, son, and give your life. This is what James is talking about. James is talking about not just a belief now. Now he's saying, hey, when you have faith, the kind of faith that saves you, it shows up in the way you live. Oh, man. James is saying, when you have faith, the kind of faith that saves you once upon a time, the way you know and the way others know is it shows up in the way that you live. So watch this. Paul was talking about justifying your faith with God, being justified with God. There is nothing you can do to be justified with God except believe. You can't impress him. Stay with me on this. I'm going to read some verses to you. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, and on. Listen to this. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. He says, for it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. What the Bible is saying here, listen, none of us have been perfect in pursuing peace and holiness. Hebrews is saying, if you haven't been perfect in pursuing peace and holiness with all people, then you won't see the Lord. Romans is saying, it is written, there is none righteous, not even one person. He goes on to say, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For the wages of that sin is death. Well, well, Pastor, that was just a few select verses. Maybe there's still some hope. Read with me what Isaiah says. But we are all like unclean things. And all of our righteousness are like filthy rags. We are like filthy rags. When we come before God and we try to impress God and justify ourselves to God, our very best that you have, think about the very best act you've ever done. Think about your very best worship. Think about your most humble moment. That is like a dirty rag before God's altar. I don't want to be crass or crude, but, but can I tell you what... what what Isaiah really means by that verse is, is when you put your very best before God, you were putting, this is what the prophet meant. And when they read it in the Hebrew, this is what they heard. You were putting menstrual rags before God. Oh, that, that, that makes it worse than just a, a, a mechanics rag. Or no, no, I want you to understand what he's saying. What he's saying is we've all sinned. Listen to what the Bible says in the book of Galatians, chapter six, I mean chapter two, verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith in Jesus Christ. For by grace, Ephesians 2 says, you have been saved 
through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, least no one so that no one can stand in God's presence and claim something before him. Say, look what I did. Look how special I am. God is saying, the way you walk into the gate and get salvation. So then what is all this other stuff talked about work? If you have salvation and you've experienced this kind of salvation where you came with nothing, broke, busted, and disgusted, and completely humble on your knees saying, Lord, just save me. I don't have anything to give you. Daddy, I'm that kid at Christmas who needs you to give me something so I can buy it back for you. That's the big, how many of you ever went to your dad and said, Dad, can I have some money so I can buy you a tie and give it to you for Christmas? Right? That was me at salvation. Dad, I got nothing. Can you give me something so I can give it back to you? Okay, once you get in, now how you walk, this is where it all meets, right here. See, Paul is talking about your justification to God. You can't justify yourself to God. James is talking about your justification to man which makes the sign of the cross. Before God, faith alone. Before man, don't just tell me, show me. Because your faith should have a consequence. People should be able to see it in the way you live. You go, well, I don't care about justifying myself to somebody else. You're a man too. You're part of that human race. And when you live a certain way, it does something in your own heart. Because let me share something with you. As a pastor, the, 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 one of the greatest attacks the enemy has on a Christian person is he tries to get them to doubt their salvation. How many of you have ever struggled with questioning your salvation? Raise your hand. How do I know this? Because that's when he can render you ineffective. How do you keep from questioning your salvation? Your works give you confidence because your faith has a consequence and it's convicting to you, it's convincing to you and others that you are in fact his. Why? Because your life shows it. I don't have to wonder if I'm his I see it because I have fruit. The Bible says, if you belong to me, you will produce fruit. Away from me, you can do nothing. But when you remain in me and I remain in you, then you can do all things and you will produce fruit. Someone said, well, pastor, I don't think that that's right because you're not supposed to judge other people. No, listen, that's a gross misinterpretation of what Jesus said. But if you don't want to judge, be a good fruit inspector. You may not have to judge, but you can be a good fruit inspector. And what I see is I look at someone's fruit and I can tell if they're in Christ or not. Because the Bible clearly says if you are in Christ, it will show up in the way you live. In the fruit you... Come on now. What I'm trying to get you to understand is both were right. One was talking about your justification to God. The other was talking about the justification, the way you live your life. And the way you live, you should live it before men so that others would want what you have. But not only have, want what you have so that you might grow in your faith. 
Because when you walk, listen, there's something tremendously satisfying about good hard work. How many of you have ever noticed that? When you work, I was about to say, when you work your butt off, (laughs) people say, Pastor, you can't say that. Oh, come on. When you work your tail off in something, Chuck, don't you feel good about it? Don't you feel good at the end of the day when you've accomplished and you've worked hard? My daddy taught me that. Work hard and feel good about it. You know, the other day I was going through the the book of Ecclesiastes with my son, and Solomon says the same thing. There's something completely gratifying and satisfying about good hard work under the sun, and, and you should feel that way. You should feel that way. Do you know you feel the same way in your spiritual life when you when your works show the consequence of your faith? You walk around feeling great. You walk around feeling faith-filled. You walk around feeling confident. You walk around believing that you can do all things because Christ is with you. And if God be for me, who can be against me? You don't have to talk yourself up into a frenzy. You already feel it. Some people are walking around trying to name it, claim it everywhere they go. They're trying desperately to talk themselves into some faith. The way you talk yourself into some faith is go and show it. Work it out. When you work it, oh, come on. Somebody say, Pastor, how do I get more on fire for the Lord? Go do something for him. Go go do the right something for him. And that's where we finish today. Somebody say, what in the world? He's finishing 15 minutes early? You know when a pastor says we're finishing, he's just circling. That's just the first circle. It'll take a while before we taxi all the way back to the, to the terminal. So please stay in your seats until we come to a complete stop. No, 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 no. Listen. Listen. I don't want you to get it twisted. I don't want you to get it mixed up. If we're talking about God, God doesn't desire your works. Paul, I mean, David put it best in Psalms 51. He says, for you do not desire sacrifice or works or good deeds or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings in bulls and rams and sheep and in grain and stuff. The sacrifice you desire, Lord, is what? A broken spirit, and a broken and contrite heart. The reason God starts there is because if you give me this, God says, if you give me your heart, then everyone else will be able to see it by the way you live. Then you won't have no problem doing the James part. Does that make sense? So you say, okay, then, then, then what am I supposed to do? Well, that's, that's the key. Because humans have been notoriously good at missing the point. Anyone can raise your hand and say, man, I miss the point all the time. I read the scripture and I see do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And somehow I end up doing to others before they do to me. You know what I mean? Or you hear the whole thing. Oh, the golden rule is what? He who has the gold makes the rules. You're missing the point. You're missing the point. Okay, so what is the point? Well, Jesus came to show us what the point was. And when he came to his people, his people, the Jewish people, let's say like us, we're his people, right? They had missed the point. 
And so in the book of Mark, chapter 2, you see him getting into three conflicts and arguments with his people. What I find interesting is this, is they have to work to follow Jesus because Jesus is all over the place. And he wasn't like in the city. He was out in the country. And the Bible says that they followed him. Who followed him? All the naysayers, all the critics, all the, all the guys that had just missed the point. You know what I find interesting? That the people who don't like you, they follow you the best. I mean, they will find you on Facebook just to criticize you. They will, I mean, anyone here know what I'm talking about? The people who don't like you, man, they will go out of their way to tell everyone they know how much they don't like you. They will do everything they can to try to run you down. I kind of feel like just leave Jesus alone. He ain't hurting you. But there they go. And they keep badgering him and asking him questions. Why? Because they missed the point. What is, see, in their minds, see, this is the thing. We all intuitively know that we can feel better if we do something, right? So if I go do something, but what if you do the wrong something? My favorite actor, Denzel Washington, has a quote that says, don't confuse what? Movement for progress. You can do a lot of something, doesn't mean you're getting anywhere. And that's the thing. They're checking boxes and they're following rules but they're actually bringing themselves further away from God. What do I mean by that? They're like, you cannot do this on on Saturday, and you can't do this on Saturday, and and this is is wrong, and that is wrong. And Jesus comes up and goes, it's not about all that y'all are doing. It's much deeper. It starts with the heart, and the heart will govern your actions. Uh Uh-oh. And so, They're hungry on a Saturday, they eat. And they go, whoa, 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 you weren't supposed to pick the grain. And why are you eating anyway? And who are you eating with? Read read chapter two of of Mark. They make a big deal about him eating. They make a big deal about how he's eating, who he's eating with, when he's eating. I mean, they're just like all on him. And Jesus is like, where is this coming from? They're trying to make themselves feel good because listen, they're trying to justify themselves to God instead of understanding that it's faith with God, justify yourself with men out of living a faith-filled life. They're doing it in reverse. And so Jesus keeps saying, no, 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 listen. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. I'm not here so that I can serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath serves me. It it gives me rest. Come on, anybody hearing what I'm saying? So when you're telling me I shouldn't eat or I shouldn't do this, or I, then then in chapter 3, it's awesome because Jesus raises the stakes. He says, I'm not going to be doing just some things on the Sabbath. I'm going to walk right into the synagogue, into God's house. And I'm going to find someone to heal. Now they really freak out and they go, whoa, 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 whoa. Listen to this, Russell. How dare you heal somebody in church? That's the last place we heal people in church. You think that that's ridiculous, isn't it? No, I've had this happen. We've we've had this happen. I can remember my father, they had a brand new uh, van. And we took it out to Stony Point, and the kids got in it, and they dirtied it up because Stony Point had no streets. It was all mud. 
He brought it back and the deacon said, well, well, that's not what the van's used for. He said, you got it all dirty. He said, well, that's what happens when you use it, but we want to keep it new. No, we miss the point all the time in church because we, re- we forget that with God, you give him your heart and you start with nothing. And then out of this humility, you learn to do according to what he thinks is important, not what we think is important. So this is what Jesus does. He goes to a man who has a withered hand. Now, I need you to understand something as the worship team comes up. This is the only time in scripture that he heals a person with a withered hand. Now, he heals multiple leopards, multiple blind men, multiple deaf men. He heals multiple paralytics. He heals all sorts of people multiple times. But the only time he heals somebody with a withered hand is here in this example, inside the synagogue, the house of God, among God's people. I believe the the withered hand represents something significant. It represents missing the point. And when we miss the point and we work in our righteousness instead of God's righteousness, that we might what? Do works before men. When we don't do it that way, then our life withers. Now think about a withered hand. It cannot reach. When we miss the point as God's people, we cannot reach who God has called us to reach. Think about a withered hand. It cannot grasp. They could not grasp the truth that Jesus was giving them. They would ask him over and over and over and over the same questions. They could not grasp. Some folks are working in reverse, just like they were, and they cannot grasp. And they come to me, they go, Pastor, how do I understand? Get humble before the Lord. Give him your life. And then go do something his way. And you will begin to grasp because you will feel the healing power where your hand will be able to reach. You'll be able to grasp and you will have strength. See, a withered hand does not have strength. You want strength in the Holy Spirit? You want to be able to pray a healing over your marriage? You want to be able to pray for others? You want to be able to move by the power, the divine power of God? Then begin to let Jesus heal you. Stop. Oh, come on now. Come on. So this is where we finish. We're going to finish early because I'm going to pray for a very special group. And the group I want to pray for is the group that maybe has never come to this point where you say, Lord, well, pastor, how do I go to that point? Well, if you're thinking, if you're thinking, Lord, I'll come to this point as soon as I clean some things up, you're missing the point. Come just like you are. You have nothing to clean up. Your very best is already like what? Filthy rags. But, but, but if I could just do, you can't do anything. Humble yourself. Cry out to the living God. Lord, heal me. Save me. God, I need you to rearrange me. Deep down in my heart, take this vice from me. Take this, this addiction from me. 
God, just save me. I'm crying out to you, Lord Jesus, son of David. Have, come on, someone finish that for me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Oh, well, pastor, I'm not that bad. You're missing the point. We're all that bad, all of us. And there's only one way to salvation. It's through that gate. Now, if you've been there, but somehow you've gotten stuck along the path, then you've got a different prayer to pray. You've got to pray, Lord, I know you saved me and you saved me at such a high price for a great reason that I might show others your glory in the way that I live. So is there anyone here that wants to experience saving grace? That is at that point where they say, I've got nothing, I need you, Lord Jesus. I need to be saved once and for all. I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand, I'm gonna pray for you. We're gonna pray together. I see hands going up all over this auditorium. I see your hand, young man. I see your hand, young lady. I see your hand, brother, I see your hands. I see your hand. I see your hands over here. We're gonna pray a very simple prayer. This is the prayer. Lord Jesus and God the Father, thank you for your son. I confess with my mouth, believe in my heart, and then we'll, cl we'll claim that, that claim from the book of Romans. We're gonna ask him to forgive us. We're gonna ask that we be led by the Holy Spirit through all eternity. And we're going to name him our King of glory, our Savior and Messiah. So pray with me. Say these words. Father God, in Jesus' name, I surrender everything. I come to you with nothing and needing you to do it all. I proclaim my faith with my mouth and I believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is Messiah, the Son of the living God, that he died on a cross for me, and he rose again on the third day. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. All of it, Lord, I trust you with it. And Holy Spirit, from this moment on, seal me, and lead me for all eternity. I will never be the same. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if you prayed that prayer, you went from darkness to light, from death to life. Your next step is to get in a disciple relationship and get baptized. Foundation, I love you with all my heart. Would you stand and sing?